Hello and welcome to the Two Who Recruit. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Two Who Recruit. So today we're going to take a deep dive into ESG and sustainability. Um, it's quite a big market for us here at IAC. We have been running this market for the past couple of years, mainly working with FTSE 100s, FTSE 250s, but also climate tech businesses, startups, consultancy firms. Um, and interestingly enough, we do actually hold two initiatives. I think it's worth mentioning on the podcast. We have our sustainability social that is invite only. It's a very exclusive event. But if you're interested in learning more, please do let us know. And we also have our Sustainability Spotlight series, which is a leadership interview programme. So any more information, please let us know. It's Chris Brooker, who heads up our department. Um, But now I'm going to pass us on to Jeans, who's going to introduce our guest today. Hello. Hi. Um, So um, today on the Two Who Recruit, I have been working with our guest, for a couple of months now, or maybe like a year. That's flown by fast, hasn't it? Um, and I'm sure not everyone wants to hear about me. Our audience would want to listen to Luke, who's our guest, Luke Graham. So before I bore you with more about me, because you hear enough each episode, I will pass you on to Luke. Hello. Hi. Thanks very much for having me on the show. That's all right. Good morning, welcome. So today is all about you. Do you want to tell us about your background and what you've been doing and what your experience is with ESG? Yeah, sure. So my uh, ESG journey actually started very young. So I, when I was a student um, at college, um, I started to get very interested in kind of environmental sciences and uh, it's linked to economics and basically got onto one of the local COP committees at the time, um, which was, uh, you know, as a student, I was a student rep, so it was uh, about 17 Going to the local council meetings, our, our student union president, yeah, really cool. Um, and uh, and going along to these meetings, and, and that's where it kind of started. Um, and then it, it just been bubbling away in the background for, for most of my other career, it's a bit of finance. Um, uh, and then I worked at Marks and Spencer, and then I was also the business partner for Plan A, um, and so working in their sustainability and seeing the finance side of some of the sustainable activities they were doing. And then I was lucky enough to. Um, have a come up with uh, counting for sustainabilities, which was the at the time the princes, now the kings, um, at trust, where he generally believed that accountants are the way to save the world. Uh, it's a very nice thing, it's probably the nicest thing that gets said to accountants. Um, and uh, so, really, working on uh, finance and sustainability initiatives there. Um, and then, really, ESG was a big feature of my time in parliament and in policy when I was in government as well. Um, and then really returned to it with Deloitte for the past two years working uh, in ESG, really focusing on, like say, that mix of finance sustainability, but also going on to the how to deliver. So it's great to say, yes, we've got these really ambitious targets, but how are you going to get there by 2025, 2030, 2050, and so on. Okay. So maybe we should start off by you giving the definition of sustainability in, in your eyes. What does it mean? What do you think it should mean maybe more than it perhaps does? So I, for me, it's doing the right things in a way that continue for a long time. 
And, uh, and I would just put the end of that profitably because it's not, you know, in a commercial context, it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. Uh, and so you've got to weave all these elements together. It can't, it's not just about um, saving the dolphins, as important as that is, um, but it's about making sure businesses survive, businesses continue to grow. And I think that's, you know, that's the interesting debate that's really come out of the last, I would say, 24 months or so, is really people start to see that commercial and financial opportunity. And obviously a lot of policymakers around the world and regulators are really pushing this direction as well um, to make sure that capital moves to the right spots to really start growing the economies and giving people more opportunities and business opportunities to grow. And you see that, I think, the EU for their Green Deal um, and the US obviously has their um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act as well, which is obviously being given, being given big opportunities for them to. Hmm. I mean, very interesting background. And I must say, before I ask my next question, it's so interesting every time I see you, what I learn about you. <laughs> It is incredible. So Luke, you're certainly someone of many talents. In your last couple of years, what sort of challenges have you faced or what sort of challenges are you seeing on the market when it comes to implementing ESG into businesses? So I think one key challenge has been um, really explaining to clients and potential clients how, you know, firstly, ESG and sustainability it's you, and I use this phrase, but it's not just about saving the dolphins, it is really good for their business as well. Mm -hmm. um, it gives you a different lens to analyze, it gives you more data, it enables you to make better, more informed decisions, and it also helps with recruitment and retention, which hopefully we'll talk about a bit more later, but it yeah, helps on those, on those aspects as well. So is it trying to help clients understand the commercial positives of ESG and sustainability, um, as well as obviously the absolute good for the climate, for the economy and for the broader social community. So I think that's, that was certainly one challenge. I think the second challenge has been certainly from a kind of consultancy point of view is what are we actually going, what are we taking to market? Because when the regulations were still unclear, and that's you know, crystallizing, so that helps. You can then go with the regulation and build the roadmaps. Um, but where everything is so new, no one really has kind of off the shelf. And where it's not like some of the you know, financial regulation of the past and where it's not an easy IT system fix, which obviously has you know, built up a lot of the big advisory elements of the sort of big consultancies of the past few years, um, uh, you know, it is, a, it is a different kind of challenge. So I think the other challenge has been making sure you're taking the right thing to market. Um, and you know, I'd certainly in my, in my role at Interloque, there's a big debate about whether we go with regulation as a leader or we go with kind of strategy and purpose. Um, and I was definitely on the role of it's regulation because again, people who have strategy and purpose probably have already done it. Um, and uh, the regulation is the only thing that everyone has to do. Thousands of companies need to do it and most of them haven't thought about it yet. And that's even in big government departments as well that haven't done any work in this area or certainly haven't done the, the level of work that you'd expect uh, to hit the targets they've set themselves. So that was a long answer to a short question. Yeah, that was quite insightful. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit earlier about finance, ESG and finance, and I guess, I guess investors, right? Because companies potentially to be seen as doing better with how they invest and where they're investing. I was speaking to somebody the week about how there's just not, there's, there's not enough, there's a lot of businesses out there yet that are perhaps um, profitable enough or exciting enough or to actually be worth investing in. 
and she's an investor at yeah, she's a partner in a business that invests in, in, in businesses. And she was saying, yes, I'd love to do it. I would love to do it. But primarily, my focus is what money I'm going to get back. And right now, I don't see anything that I'm excited by. I see a few battery charging businesses and I see a few, you know, carbon carbon accounting tax businesses, but I'm not seeing anything else. Is that a problem? I think it is. You saw, I think last year as well, you saw it with a backlash to some of the ESG and you saw, I think it was BlackRock and some of yeah. us that are getting you know, big challenges from some uh, of the investor community saying they you know, almost over-indexed, over-prioritized ESG and sustainability. Um, but I think, again, it's just this point of where are the incentives, how does the market kind of catch up with what the regulations, the targets that have been set. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there are more, uh, you know, you're seeing that big boost in kind of fusion yeah, and technology that's taking place. You're seeing, I think, I think it's a related field, kind of life sciences, which still is is very much connected in this field. And there's a lot of opportunities there. And the tech side is starting to build up. Um, so I think it's I think it's coming. I think it's probably just a little bit slower than some people were expecting. I mean, again, there's this interesting view about the kind of ESG premium. I know when I was speaking to banks, uh, they would often tell me that, that you can easily get a, a significant increase in your, your multiple um, and eight to twelve percent premium on the value of the firm if your ESG credentials are right or seen as good or more excellent. Um, and they had some data to kind of yeah, back that up. Um, now I know there are, like say, what you're speaking to as well. There's definitely some more skepticism. So I think, I mean, I think there will this will come through in the actual kind of performance in the next yeah, hopefully one, two, three years. Um, I, I'm kind of bullish on it, mainly because the government's so far behind it. So again, if you go back, if you look at the incentives in the EU Green Deal and in the IRA in um, so the Inflation Reduction Act in in the US, um, it's it's there's so many incentives that are put in. Also, the UK still put it sort of R and D incentives as well. Um, I think to make you know, to make the case, you've really got to start looking at these companies in the round of saying, okay. I'm not going to invest return immediately, but then actually, if I leverage in this access to government funding, if I leverage in the R&D and the tax breaks, and you look at the package, then suddenly actually it starts to look a lot more attractive. And I think that's an opportunity. That's obviously an opportunity for consultancies who can go to the market as one firm as well uh, to go and serve those clients, because yeah, that's how you make it. I think you'll make a lot of these firms and a lot of clients um, get the profits they're expecting. Okay, so that's a big thing to want to change is there, are there other things that you think fundamentally need to change there must be loads but yeah, yeah. No, i think i think the um other is just getting clarity over regulations so again yeah we'll get that from the eu you know over the summer uh the ISB obviously the standards are already drafted but still being tweaked snc in america once that finalizes um and i think you, you know, csrd is now being trained and kind of um is being adopted throughout the european union so i think once all the regulations are set and you're very, very clear. Um, and then there's a, a, a clear kind of roadmap ahead. Um, I think that will be an enormous help to companies because I think before now they haven't realized a lot of these deadlines were coming. Um, they've kind of nodded along and be like, yeah, it's really important. And suddenly now these things are really, you know, they're starting to hit the walls as you start seeing deadlines for next year in some instances for some cases of CSRD and others. I guess within that as well, you've obviously got global challenges as well, right? Different countries have different ways of working, regulations, guidelines. And I think within that, you've obviously got Upper T100 that has multiple subsidiaries. Their guidance will be different. How, in your opinion, how do you think that will sort of, you know, how, how will businesses overcome that? 
I think, I mean, the fortunate thing is that, I mean, the, the, all the ESG regulations, I mean, that's acronym in itself, but all of these regulations were kind of, it was an alphabet soup, right? Between TCFD, TNFD, CSRD, SFND, everything that you were putting through, um, it was quite confusing. You are now seeing a kind of global convergence with certainly TCFD at the core. Yeah, TCFD is incorporated into some of the UK regs, it's incorporated into the uh, European regs. If you're looking at listing in Singapore, you're going to have to be aligned with the ATCFD. So this is spreading around the world. You're seeing that convergence around what is those kind of you know, the key pillars of the TCFD um, disclosures. So I think that's really helpful. Uh, and I think that will you know, bring people together and again, set that clear baseline. And of course, the ISSB um, standards as well, I think will be super helpful in just giving everyone, just like IFRS, mm. that's how you'll be able to start standardizing. And you will have that local reporting that there may be some countries that will be ahead, some behind, but then you will be able to get up to that kind of ISSB, IFRS type standard. You, you mentioned before you came on the podcast about actually the qualifications that, that you've looked into, that you're doing. Is that a problem as well? The fact that, I mean, there's the Cambridge, there's the Cambridge qualification that everybody talks about. Yeah. <laughs> but that's one, that's one school, right? So there should really be more, there should be more going on, there should be more developed. Is there more going on? Are there more things being developed? Is there enough from a qualification perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are. I think there is a danger, just like with any qualification, you can get these certificates all over the place and what do they actually mean. Mm. Um, I think I understand, I was just looking at the rankings, the University of Edinburgh seems to be coming up with some very good sustainability measures. Obviously, Oxford have been designing their own courses as well. So there are other institutes that, uh, institutions sorry, that are coming forward with this. Um, and I think they, yeah, there should be. And also, I think there should definitely be a challenge on the material. I know, having done the Cambridge course a year ago, you know, there was a lot of material even then that was kind of, you know, you, you would, it was in the background of your knowledge already, um, if you'd been in the kind of broadly sustainability space. So actually, I think it's going to be the challenges institutes and where they'll, they'll win um, will be the institution that kind of takes the knowledge and then propels you forward to what's next and starts giving the practical toolkits. Because um, I think that will be really needs to uh, used to kind of empower some of the new professionals. Because the, 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 the blinding truth is there are very few people that have been in this space for 10 yeah, plus yeah. years um, because the regulation things haven't been around uh, 10 plus years. You look at most people who've been in it to a few years and, and they're often, you know, the, the kind of top, uh, you're already in the kind of top five to 10%. Um, and so I think it's about, again, people being honest, people being clear about where the regulations are. And I think that's important for you know, with your in-house or whether you're in a consultancy. Yeah. Well, well, we often, so I do a lot of in-house work. I work a lot with general councils and heads of audit and governance. And there still is this question, right? Where sustainability sits within an organisation? Some organisations will have their own department, but some it will fall under GC, some it will fall under marketing, HR. Um, where do you think it should sit in-house? I think we've definitely seen a shift towards finance. Um, again, because everything is, is needs to be put into that annual report. Um, I mean, we did an exercise once with a, a group of colleagues where we workshopped. We, we pulled out the kind of um, the whole uh, list of the kind of the finance taxonomy and the sustainability taxonomy, mapped them, looked at the activities. And then we start to trace it back and say, okay, if this goes wrong, who gets, yeah, who gets whacked? Um, and more often than not, it was coming out as the CFO or equivalent. Um, so I think yeah, you will see finance and CFO taking on a lot more. 
I think COOs or equivalent roles uh, will take on quite a bit, but there will always be a case for you know, a sustainability team doing the strategy and policy piece and, and then risk and others. I mean, the, the ultimate answer is everyone should have responsibility yeah. for it, yeah. but actually the kind of accountability for the reporting and a lot of the delivery, I think will be between kind of finance and ops um, because that, and that's what we're seeing uh, a lot of governance structures, I think we're starting to flex to fit that. Mm. Big job being a CFO nowadays, isn't it? Huge. Everything. Yeah. CFO is basically being a great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. CEOs is like, it's great. I've got all responsibility. The numbers and the painful stuff. This is great. Yeah. What do they do? Everything. Absolutely everything. I mean, look, we've, we've, as I mentioned earlier, we've worked quite a bit, you know, together in the past. I've spoken to candidates who have sometimes sort of said, Yes, you know, I get this, I've been doing this, you know, I know it inside out. What, I mean, what, question one, do people get it? And two, how do you weed out those who don't get it or not quite there? And what advice would you give to them if they did want to get into it? I think, and this may be the kind of accountant in me coming out, but it, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is you just, you, 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 you know, test nicely. Uh, for a bit of detail. Um, so yes, I understand you know, TCFD reporting requirements. Great, okay, well, take me through the core pillars, take me through the 11 disclosures, let's go through, let's, where do you think is an example of best practice of this? Where do you think there's you know, uh, areas where reports have been lacking? What trends are you seeing? Uh, I think the more, just like with any you know, job or any technical knowledge, you just need to probe and dig that a little bit deeper to make sure they do understand. And importantly, is make sure they grasp the kind of commercial side and the organizational impact of this, so they can match back to that kind of finance, HR, ops, legal, uh, and make sure you kind of square all these different departments there together, because there will be a lot of crossover and it's very different, uh, as you say, different uh, organizations as well. So they've got to be able to appreciate and understand how they'll do that. Having a very kind of purist, this is the uh, responsibility of a sustainability department and they are you know, the saviors of the company type thing, um, not always so helpful. Uh, especially if you go to a company where perhaps people are kind of true believers in, in sustainability and you've got to take them on a journey. Mm. I think there's also a fine balance, isn't there? Because I've spoken to people who are so passionate about it, but at the same time can't make that linkage to commerciality and how to drive business forward. And there's a bit of a gap there, in, in my opinion, you know, from what I've seen on the market. Um, so, yeah. It's definitely, and we were, you know, in, in one of my roles, I was working with a client on a, and we were, we were given some data, basically where they made a factory net zero. Mm. And we were analyzing that and trying to really drill down to understand how you're doing it and then how that factory is performing financially versus the other factories actually show that true benefit, which with the data, they very much, their ops director believe they were able to do. They just needed to kind of you know, present it in the right way, uh, summarize it, and then start exporting it elsewhere in the company. So I think once you can start, you know, proving that link, that the changes you made for ESG are starting to build the benefits. And also it can be for, for people too, right? It's in their productivity, some recruitment, some retention, then these things start to map together. Yeah. Well, I guess that, that's the whole point around sustainability is about longevity. It's not just about the environment, it's about retention, and that's where the, the S and the G comes into play, which everyone seems to forget. <laughs> there is there is another thing tied to it. It's not just the environment. Um, Rob, our podcast producer, did have a question. Have you written it down, James? I did, yeah. So, <laughs> it's in your brain. No, I have. 
So Rob actually came up with a question. Chat, Rob, not just our producer, but actually a very fair question. He, he did ask, what positive or negative consequences are there when it comes to ESG on businesses? Go negative. Go negative. Go negative. Yeah, go negative, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, go negative first. So, if it, I mean, you can see some really big, um, you know, kind of brand impacts, right, from from negativity on, on ESG. So, I mean, the, the high profile ones, obviously, Volkswagen when they misled on the, their vehicle uh, environmental emissions. Um, from an S side, obviously, I would argue, although I quite like, you know, Brewdog's company, I think they had an enormous impact through their kind of um, S side because of the various things that were reported taking place there. Um, but there's other, do you know, there's, there's some big impacts that kind of yeah, flow all the way through. So I think negatively, I think massively on brands, I think you're going to see a lot more action from the FRC and other regulators now that the rules are kind of bedding in and people having to report. And also they're closing the loopholes about kind of, you know, reporting by exception or, uh, you know, exempt and explain. As that's being phased out um, and you're looking for more assurance, then obviously that will become like financial reporting and obviously the fines and other further actions that can take place as a result. So I think it can, you know, and we're going to see the next couple of years, I'm sure we'll start to have some high profile cases of uh, greenwashing and uh, other issues. And we definitely, I think it's a big, I think there's a very big risk of that. Um, and uh, I think, you know, firms need to be looking very hard about what they're doing and, and their assurance and auditors as well about exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, because it's a major danger. On the positive, uh, there's uh, on the positive side. Yeah, I think we yeah you know, we talked uh, about the kind of you know, the, the people impact, but I do think you know, if you're looking at um, a lot of the data that's out there, you can get. I think it's almost a forty percent premium on some of your products mm. that have those strong ESG credentials. So that's from a product point of view. Um, we already mentioned before about some valuation sides uh, from banks and investors. So that's another piece as well. So there there is, and actually, if you're looking at the uh, and if you're looking at some of the firms, I think are doing quite well. Um, the kind of circularity uh, piece when they're going to product design and uh, full life cycle analysis, that I think is a major opportunity for kind of product sustainability and uh, ability to increase profitability there. Because it's not just the products that you can charge a premium on, it's all the business transformation and methods that would go behind it about using different materials, different ways of working. Uh, and then that usually gives kind of overall benefits to the company. So I think that's the, the positive end. Rob's answer the question. He's saying yes. He's okay, saying yes. right. <laughs> I, can, I can sense it. <laughs> I can sense it all the way from, I think he's in Houston. He's in, yeah. <laughs> he's going to go to test. No, you haven't listened to me. <laughs> I'm not in Houston. Um, no, we yeah, are A good question though. It's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. I think it's really important. Um, it's funny you mentioned there about the audit responsibility of audit so a lot of the work we do is with internal auditors and the amount of companies who are starting to ask us for ESG auditors or people who can just look at sustainability and ESG across business um, actually quite often I have to say no because actually the point of internal audit is that they look at they couldn't cost the business. Mm -hmm. They don't just specialise in one area. Yeah. You don't have a HR auditor necessarily. You don't have a, mm -hmm. yeah. They do everything. They look at everything. Um, but we're getting quite a lot of demands now for ESG auditors. Yes. And of course, they aren't out there. No. Like, they just not they don't exist yet. And we, we, we had 
projects working on that and um, basically working with internal audit functions uh, and even as consultants kind of being internal auditors and then training them up of how to undertake the kind of ESG aspect, how you go about it. Because you're quite right, a lot of folks in internal audit and, and, and overall audit insurance have a great skill set with a very strong methodology. Um, and that, you know, kind of to date was almost too much for a lot of the ESG reporting because it didn't require such the high level of scrutiny. However, with the regulations they are now and the market expectations, they do. So you're quite right, it's that doesn't surprise me that you're seeing that, that increase. And certainly we're seeing that demand start to come through from um, internal audit and how it was growing. And certainly when I was building up the sustainable CFO uh, at Deloitte, that was one of the key areas we were incorporating was internal audit and controls within that offer because we were seeing very much that demand coming from yeah, finance and risk functions. I mean, all the more reason it does make me think if ESG sat within marketing and then you have these blended roles, ESG and audit, ESG side, you go into report that right. I mean, it just makes me think all the more reason it should sit with a CEO or CFO because ultimately it does need to have the reason where it is financially driven rather than reporting it to marketing. It does make me bones of business should be yeah. in the bones of the business. Absolutely. Completely agree with that. <laughs> Should we sort of dive that into recruitment? So, yeah. Luke, you've obviously been a hiring manager. We'll go into retention and all of that later down the line. But you've hired. You've been in that position. What sort of... Got two questions for you there, actually. What challenges did you face as a hiring manager when it comes to finding talent? Um, so I think in the ESG space specifically is that... Um, that lack of kind of extensive detailed knowledge and experience, because like I say, most people have entered it within the last few years. So even when sometimes you meet someone who says they are an experienced professional, it's not the same as when you meet an experienced financial controller, for example, or head of FP&A or, or you know, a finance position where you know, absolutely, so you can test them in all different scenarios. And they're like, yeah, that's fine, because I did it. I went, I ran this chain of petrol stores, I did this, and then, when I ran this tech company, I did that. Like, brilliant, they've got every aspect covered from kind of sorting out a VAT dispute to um, transfer pricing between different you know, uh, multinational units. Um, and, and so there, there is that lack. I think the, the interesting thing is also when people kind of refer, it's just like say, digging to that extra layer. Or when they say expert, okay, we're taking down to the level that you're comfortable with. So I'm just clear. I think that was the biggest problem is often people would say, oh, no, I know that. And even happened a couple of times when we hired people, then you'd be like, brilliant, cool. You kind of get the project and be like, this is the you know, TCFD reporting, right? You're the expert. Like, okay, so there you go. And you kind of pass it to them. It's like, awesome, give us an update when it comes through. Uh, let me know if you need any help. And then you get the person, oh, well, I, don't do, I don't do that level of detail. You're like, ah. Uh, they were doing what I was doing. They were making it. And you have to be very careful of that. So I think you're just going through that, that detail. And also, but then, as I say, because it's such a growing space, and um, yeah, most firms are okay with that as long as you're honest. And then they, you can go on the training courses. A lot of this stuff isn't, you know, it's not uh, a secret mystical art. Um, it, is, it is knowledge that needs learned and practiced and tested. Um, and so you can go to, I think if someone's you're honest, you then say, actually, here's the areas I'm not so confident on, but I'll do a course or we'll do this training or, you know, actually I'll, I'll ride junior on a project. And then, yeah, go to the senior position afterwards, you know, after the first one's come through. So then, I think that is, um, I think that is, that is a tricky point. Um, and then, uh, and then also actually flip it the other way is uh, getting ESC folks to be really commercial. So as we were talking earlier, actually some people who are more experienced, who are excellent, they may have come from 
an environmental science background, for example, or even come from all the policy end, um, which is great. But then when you try to take them into the commercial environment, say, okay, well, this is how it needs to work for a company. Uh, they may object to the particular company that they're working with. Um, it may be a problem in terms of, you know, just trying to think about the commercial benefit and how the company, going back to a point earlier, duels, how do I get the value from it for the investor as well? So I think there's the, the challenge that way uh, also. And there's not that many people out there who are, you know, ESG folks are in, in demand, right? There's, yeah. you know, often uh, colleagues kind of across the ESG space within Deloitte, outside, are regularly being called by recruiters because there are a lot of opportunities. I would especially say at the kind of manager and senior manager level, mm-hmm. um, where I think there's a huge, I mean, you will know better than me, but, um, <laughs> you know, we saw enormous kind of competition at those grades yeah. and they were often the people that get tapped up and leave um, with, with quite yeah, high frequency. Yeah. Well, we often talk about the quality line um, and this must be very relevant to anybody within this market because the quality line basically means that, okay, you've got a minimum level of technical experience you might have, but actually it's fundamentally down to the values. Do they align with the business? Competencies, yeah. do they have the right competencies to join the team? Um, as long as you've got the right level of technical experience, the right competencies and the right values, they should be hired. And it's just understanding, isn't it, where that quality line is for a role in sustainability. Um, still must be quite hard to figure out because you might don't have enough to kind of compare against. Exactly. And if you're, yeah. you're only seeing, um, yeah, a lot of the big four people putting out their reports of the kind of the first and second rounds of TCFD reporting, for example, and also getting the first CFD kind of reports out mm-hmm. or preparations for them. And so everything is very new. So I think the, the other, I guess in, in, in establishing that quality line, um, you also need to uh, find the person or people who are dynamic enough to constantly evolve because mm-hmm. they're going to be challenged. And actually the, the regulations, yes, they'll get set you know, in the summer, but there will be more, I'm sure, coming. Um, and this will continue to be quite an evolutionary space. Um, so I think that it's got to be, you know, you'll be kind of running for quite a long time, I think, to keep up. So ideal background, mm-hmm. what do you think that might be? Taking away somebody who's maybe gone to university and done that first job as a grad. We're thinking about people who are, who've had maybe like 10 years of experience. What types of backgrounds would you blend better? Um, I think for uh, for the kind of key issue roles, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm biased, I would say finance. Um, <laughs> but no, I think there's a, a, a lot of different roles. I think, um, yeah, if you've got environmental scientists, I think that's great because also if you're doing the scenario analysis for as required by TCFD and some of the regs, Having someone with that scenario analysis, qualitative and quantitative. I think the quantitative side is super important. Um, so I think you've got that, you know, that expertise and that background. I also think engineers, um, so people with engineering background, because actually when you're consulting or when you're working with different uh, companies, especially those that have physical assets, people who can start to bring together uh, the how with the kind of regulation piece of that you can do this. Well, if we change this material. Or you, you know, change this way of working. That starts to bring real value. So you know, I, I know I've been discussions before about how we kind of you know, recruit and and push forward groups of kind of different engineers with the ESG knowledge as well, who can then go in and help with business transformation. It's not just on the kind of IT and tech and data, but actually in the kind of physical business ops to make things flow. So I think that would be another great opportunity. And then of course, um, data and tech, uh, another big opportunity there, because. 
Yeah, because so many of the of this reporting is reliant upon good data inputs, connecting even with the kind of enterprise reporting systems, um, and then you know, linking, talking to finance, then getting them kind of reporting at the other side. So you've got the kind of enterprise, you know, architecture and everything else that might go through it. So it really is a um, yeah a full process, and I would yeah I think people in the the data analytics space I think will, will be clear with us for sure. That's quite interesting. Well, I mean, look, AI is getting more and more popular with Chat G, G, GPT. GPT. Yes. I don't even know. I don't even use it. Don't use it. Have no idea. I'm not techie, clearly, as everyone knows. But in terms of AI, what impact do you think that has on? your career, like your sort of sector and ESG and sustainability in general? I mean, I, I think it could be very significant. You know, I've only started exploring, you know, ChatGPT and some of its capabilities. There we but go. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it's, you know, when, you, when you're looking at that, for example, if you're checking on regulations and reporting, mm. now obviously the data, it hasn't been updated much beyond 2021, right? Well, it's in the process of doing that. So it hasn't captured um, a lot of information yet. But if you, if you look at that, I think, a lot of first order kind of reporting, you may even be able to start looking at some of that internal audit type process we wouldn't be able to take in. I mean, it's a similar risk to what they've been telling all the accountants for a long time that your job's going to get sucked up by AI. Yeah. Um, and that's taken a while, but you you, know, you saw it a few years ago, APAR, mostly getting automated even with like a zero type you know, app. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing more of that kind of transition across. So I think it might turbocharge uh, you know, a lot of that space. And you'll see, you know, where do the, where do the consultancies and where the different functions go. Um, but, you know, we're still seeing a lot of traditional finance roles being, you know, uh, recruited, even though tech has moved forward. Yeah. Um, so I think there's still, yeah, I don't think we're any danger of ESG being taken away just yet. Yeah. Um, but it, it feels like, I mean, I read all the papers and things that everyone else does, but it feels like AI is, you know, it's coming up pretty fast and we can see some more radical transformation not maybe in the next 12, 24 months, but in the next mm -hmm. five years, mm -hmm. uh, where we could be, yeah, if we came back here, by suddenly producing a very different environment. Yeah, we won't be here at all. Yeah. yeah. We're going to be extinct. It'd be oh, the senior and Jules bots uh, <laughs> doing the senior and Jules AI. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we need to have that. Yeah. Right? Same, same sort of back, back from recruitment, right? We, we sort of, people are always like, oh, AI, you can get a, you know, a robot to sort of do the whole CD thing. But I think that you, you can't, in my opinion, you can't because you need that human element to make a judgment on not the CV, what's not on paper. It's not what is what looks good there, right? It is the human aspect. It is the person, and it's giving a view on that and giving context on that. And I think that's what makes a difference in our hiring process when it comes to finding candidates for our clients. Like matchmaking, as you said earlier, right? Literally, we are glorified <laughs> matchmakers. And of that. And also the DNI piece. Yeah. I mean. Yes, you could say that as human beings, we all have more bias somewhat. We all know we are. But I still think it's more dangerous to rely on AI. I mean, we've we've seen it happen. These systems are so sophisticated that actually they, they, they go off past historic data. So if you're looking to create a more diverse team, but it's working on a system that of how they've always run it in the past, you're not going to get a more diverse team because they're using historic data, which is not what you want to do. You want to use, you want to change what happened before. It terrifies me. It is no, and, and it embeds. You know, you've seen it from quite a few reports. And things that embeds the bias that is already there, and so uh, I, I think that's right. I do think all of us. I think the win-win is just understanding what AI can do, and then having that effective partnership. 
Um, and I think then it can kind of sort of, as we've used other aspects of technology, computing, everything else to accelerate, you know, or augment human capabilities, I think this would be the same. Um, if we can just, you know, understand to use it in the right way. But I think, you know, to our point about courses and, and understanding, I think probably most of the country needs to go on an AI course in the next six to 12 months, because I think, you, know, you, you there's such a big gap between the, 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 the folks that are experts in this area and those who are just starting to use it for the first time. Or those who don't even know what it is. Chat What I am not up to date with these things at all, clearly. In terms of you as a leader of a business, I mean, I'm connected with a lot of ESG professionals from the work that I've done. We've got Alyssa and we've got Charlotte in ESG who work alongside Chris Brooker, um, who work across a lot of sustainability ESG roles, widespread. What sort of skill sets would you look for as a hiring manager in candidates so that, you know, they can listen to that and sort of take, take a bit of knowledge from you around, you know, what looks good? I think, I mean, first and foremost, you know, as deep as ESG knowledge as you can find, um, so as, as much as they've, as they've got. Um, I think some experience of, of making it work, making it work in real businesses, not just academic, but actually making it work. And it doesn't have to be businesses, could be um, yeah, public organizations, not for profits, uh, all, all very valid. So I think that would be the other. I think them to be numerate and uh, comfortable with you know, large data sets and, and quantitative analysis. Oh, damn. <laughs> Gone. You're off the shortlist, Jules. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Um, and uh, and then and then also um, making sure they've got that, that very much kind of flexible and dynamic outlook. Because whatever you bring them in to do is probably not what they're going to be doing in twelve to eighteen months' time. So someone who can definitely flex uh, yeah. with that and then keep evolving as this space continues to move. So I think they need to be quite dynamic characters. Um, and folks are willing to, to go and also get hopefully get that broader experience of the S and the G in as well. You know, you, as you start looking at the social impact of some of these things that we're starting able to quantify and, and link to more government outcomes as well, I think there's some big opportunities in that space too. So, so would you would you say that would you say that DNI would fall within the social? I think so. This is so. There used to be quite a debate between the yeah. is between the S and the G. Um, and oh, okay. I think you know, the way I always went through this was always kind of you know governance is facilitating how you get the S, the E, and the S delivered. Mm. Um, so I would put DNI more on the governance side because I think it's part of having like structures in place and policies to make sure everyone can be recruited and you get that balance and and uh, team. The S is kind of the the good external outcome of you know, how many people employed in the area, what is the mix, are we making sure we're hitting every community um, in terms of declaration is being reduced, whereas the social mobility, uh, all those factors that would come in, which I think would be more comfortable in the S. But there is some, I know there's the debate around that, that would usually be my, my take on DIA more towards the uh, G, but uh, many times it appears within the S. The problem is just too much confusion. <laughs> too many acronyms. It's too yeah. many acronyms, no one knows what you're meaning. <laughs> yeah, scrap it all. <laughs> change it, change it something else. Something else. Um, I guess on the diversity piece, because mm. from what I understand, finding diversity within this profession at the moment is difficult, mainly because of social mobility, different backgrounds. Stereotypically, a lot of people who go to university do sustainability coming from a certain might be a 
majority. Um, and actually, we need to think about how you diversify people coming in. And it all starts at schools, right? It all yeah. starts at schools, starts at home. We've started going into schools, actually, to talk about the, the different professions that we work with. Yeah. So we've gone to you. Um, I'm not sure if I can mention the name of the school, so I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> just we'll get told off. Yeah. Told off school, school A. Yeah. School A. School A. Yeah. Um, we've gone down there and we have actually talked to them about how to how to get careers, the different types of careers available. Because to be totally honest, and my parents are teachers, they they of course they've been teaching all their life. They don't necessarily know all the careers that are out there. They have no idea what recruitment into recruitment they have no idea what ESG would mean and so actually begs the question have we got a bit of a disconnect going on where schools just fundamentally don't really know where they can be sending kids in the future that's a bit terrifying isn't it it is I mean first first it's an amazing thing if you are going to schools and teaching that because I wish that when I was in get people would have come in and, and had those discussions you know, yeah with with my school because you just didn't know you know, what really what was out there. Yeah, you, know, you knew there were doctors and you think accountants and a few other things, but there really wasn't that much. You, know, you only saw what you saw and that was it. Um so I think it's I think it's really important. And and, and also I just think educate education as a whole needs you know, although I, I see um certainly in, in England there's been improvement in some of the grades that have come out recently, I do think there needs to be a lot more practical um workings there in schools. Like it's it's unacceptable that people leave schools and they don't know what mortgages are or ICEs or how Absolutely. to trade shares yeah. and do all these basic things that should be in everyone's yeah. power to do. And you need to get that in schools so people can leave. Yeah. At least being able to participate in the biggest parts of you know our economy mm. um, and be able to do things right. So I think that's I think that's key. And then second to that, I, I do think it's having that business relationship. So there's more of an active feedback. Teachers should be partnered with local businesses and things. So they're clear about what the development's coming up, what's the demand and needs. How many of our teachers are effective programmers? You know, how many of them are like familiar with different uh, ESG regs, life sciences, new technologies, and really want to have? You know, I'd be as long as you had the quality control in. It'd be great to see classes being taken by some of the market leaders and professionals, saying this is where technology is going to boost kids up, so they know right this one got targets on the study. And that we we actively well, we actively uh, improve the curriculum because the biggest risk is you you, know, you work on a curriculum that's set five ten however many years ago and you're constantly then behind um, by the time they get to the labour market um, and that yeah that does seem to be an issue here from employers on a fairly regular basis certainly for the you know, uh, folks who haven't gone well some actually quite a few have gone to university and not gone to university yeah yeah well even just the new the new grade system. The nine, eight, Numbers. seven, six. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we have a clue. Yeah. And actually, that's that's going to be really interesting when that all comes through. So when those kids who are currently sorry, teenagers who are currently doing their A levels and they're getting nines, eight, sevens, mm. well, I don't really know what that means. I luckily do for my parents, but the hiring managers we work with will have no idea what that means, and mm. we're going to have to educate people on what the grading mm. system means. And so, yeah, I think it's all, um, yeah. I think, I think it's a really relevant point. Firstly, what I will say is that I have a lot of respect for teachers and what they do, but I would say I completely agree. If somebody came into my school when I was much younger and taught me about investments, I would, it would put me and, you're right, the economy or, you know, the, 
the general, you know, the UK population in a much better position, in a stronger position than what it is probably now, if we actually so, you know, put that in right from, from the beginning. Yeah. I think that's a really relevant point. And, and I know some, yes, there's some schools out there that are doing this. There are amazing teachers. And my, uh, one of my best friends is a, is a master teacher, just about to become a headmaster of one of the academies. Yeah, and um, I know they do some great stuff, but I think it's about just keeping that toolkit as fresh as possible and giving the opportunity. Because if you're not educated on it, you're probably going to become a victim of it. Yeah. Um, and in this kind of, you know, 21st century, you've got such, you know, challenges. There are so many insecurities. People don't have jobs for lives. They're constantly, you know, going through. And if you speak to a, even, you know, speak to juniors at, at, at Deloitte, you know, that a lot of them don't want to just take the career path to partner anymore. That's not what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So but if people are going to be changing their careers every couple of, you know, couple of years, how do you tool people for that? Um, and how do you make sure that if business is going to be dynamic, how can you make sure mm-hmm. people are as, as dynamic so they can be robust? To go from one thing to the next. Yeah, absolutely. And touching up on that point as well is, I think it's really important in school that things like presentations are really sort of, you know, as interview skills, how to build your, you know, and I know I did a bit of that in the past where, you know, you go into schools or training. Um, my ex, my previous job was to teach people how to build their CVs, but do interview techniques with that. But they weren't taught that at school. It's a bit of a so yeah. I think, it, you know, that consistency of doing that is really, really important. So when people do, like you said, chop and change, you know, what's the average average um, time that someone's in a role? What, two two years? No idea. Two, I, think, I think it's around two years on, on average. I think if you are going, if they are going to chop and change, how to utilise their skill sets? You've got people in the past in businesses where they've been there for 10 years. They forget what it's like to interview. And I think it's good to brush up on that. The problem with the interview piece is that interviewing does change, like mm-hmm. the trends of interviewing does, does change. Yeah. And, and so I, I don't think it's about interviewing, I think it's about just confidence and ability to step out of comfort zone. I mean, I was, I very fortunately went to a school that always pushed me out of my comfort zone. So we had to do like drama, debating club, mm. I had to stand up on the stage and sing Oliver. Oliver song. Yeah. Great school. I was Oliver in the school. Jules is going to do that at the end. Yeah. I'm busy. I've got to go. And that actually really helped me because I was very used to being put literally on a spotlight. I was very used to that because our school really pushed us to do that. I don't think it's a generational thing as well. That doesn't happen anymore. Kids, they don't want to embarrass kids. They don't want to create too much competition, they don't want to, you know, they want to support people and, and it's going the opposite way. Actually, you should be nervous. Yeah. You should be pushed out of your comfort zone. You should be feeling really awkward as hell at the age of 14 mm. because that pairs you for life. Yeah. Well, and you see this in the workplace as well, right? And you know, yeah, feedback. And I'm a big believer that you should be direct and clear with, with folks and supportive. Um, but you know, if something's gone well, tell them. But also if something's not going well, get it early. Uh, you know, in the moment if something goes wrong, it's like, right, let's have an uncomfortable hour now because you'll fix it within the week and actually, you know, then you're still going to get a top grade at the end of the year rather than don't tell people because people don't want to, you know, put it down or anything else and they trundle along and then at the end of the year they're very disappointed because they're on a development plan. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, is, is key to having successful workplace cultures is that honest yeah. open bit and know that you know, it doesn't a bad day doesn't need to become a yeah. bad year. Yeah. 
it's it's the reality, isn't it? I mean, our CEO, Dave Taylor, who you, you know, our listeners would have heard on a, a previous podcast that we've actually just released up. I think it was me. Um, I am. I'm very good at shouting out. I must say, that's um, impressive. Yeah. He he actually has a quote, and I love this. It's get comfortable. It get get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And that's again, like you said, catch it early. You know, get it done because the more honest you are, I think it's just important the reality of things, right? To help people move forward. It's back to the ESG. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. But being uncomfortable, you'll be rejected. Yeah, and they'll be a really good sailor to capsule. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Absolutely. Full circle there. Yeah. Okay. You can recruit us. <laughs> yeah. And she bamboozled. Bamboozled time. Right. Yes. This time I would. Two questions. Yeah, what did you ask? Uh, do you recycle? Yes or no? Yes. Ah. Jules, do you recycle? Yes or no? Yeah. I'm throwing Jules under the bus here. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> Although I get very frustrated when I get home and I eat a lot of greens, like spinach and stuff, and the, the pack is never recyclable. Oh, so the ones in that and kale as well, which I'm constantly told is just rabbit food, but I like it. I love but um, yeah. in the, the wrapping is, uh, yeah, it's not true. It's me nuts. Paper or plastic straws? Uh, no straw. No straw? Great, good answer. Pizza or pasta? <laughs> 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 um, no, that was end of my bamboozled question. <laughs> Peter, it's very important. I must say, I'm sure our listeners will agree. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if we're in New York, it's definitely pizza. New York pizza. pizza. Why, why New York pizza? It's amazing. And I witnessed. I witnessed a friend have his first slice of New York pizza about a month ago, and uh, it was almost like a religious experience. <laughs> so that's like, what's it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Religious experience for him, not for me. But uh, yeah, hadn't heard anything like it. Perfect. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think we should run them. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, we, yeah, thank you for joining us. That's been brilliant. And um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Two Who Recruit. See you next time.